Let's open with a word of prayer. Father God, as we come before you this morning to hear your word preached and proclaimed, Lord, I ask that you would close our ears to any error that I may speak and open our hearts and minds to what you have for us. And Lord, as we continue our series on first or second Samuel, excuse me, as we continue our series on second Samuel, Lord, I ask that, um, that as we come to this crown jewel of second Samuel, and really this crown jewel of the Samuel that you would open our minds, our spirits, to what it says. There are so many exciting passages throughout Samuel, and it's tempting to when we hit this passage to just blow by it. And yet this passage is so critical to the meaning of Scripture. Lord, help us to slow down. Help us to dwell on this passage this week. Help us to go back and read it, think about it, wonder about it, ponder it. It's an amazing passage. In Jesus' name, amen. So why in the world would we read a Christmas passage in July? Now, there are a lot of reasons that Christmas happens in July. If you went to the beach, Christmas might have happened in July. Um, you might get interesting gifts in July. You might have a birthday in July. Lots of things can happen in July that might be pretty amazing. But Christmas doesn't really happen in July, and you don't often hear a Christmas passage read in July, especially when you're reading uh, a passage and you're preaching a series on 2 Samuel. And when I first started preaching at St. Andrews with the first crew I had, they would often ask why I would read these different passages in connection with sermon series that I would read, and they'd be like, that's really weird. This passage belongs in a different place in the lectionary series or a lectionary calendar. This is an Advent passage, or this is an Easter passage. It doesn't belong right here. And they said it innocently. Most of them had come from revisionist churches. Now, when I say revisionist, I, <clears throat> you can kind of also say liberal. I don't like saying the word liberal because in our day and age, we often confuse that with political. In political terms, liberal means Democrat or conservative might mean Republican. But in Christian terms, a liberal means a very different thing. And so what I mean by revisionist or liberal is they had a very different view of Scripture. They might mean that God is just kind of some nebulous, vague thing, and, and the Bible isn't necessarily the Word of God. In their terms, they had come under priests who either believed that the Bible wasn't the Word of God at all, the Bible was just the writings of individual people, and they might believe that Jesus was just a man, right? He was just some random guy who preached. He might have been a wise teacher, but he certainly wasn't God. And so they had had a lot of clergy who knew nothing about the Bible at all, or if they knew something about the Bible, they weren't very interested in teaching it. And so when I would read or teach these things, they, they just didn't know. And so they were used to reading certain things in the lectionary calendar, but they weren't really used to learning anything about it. And so these things seemed odd to them. It was okay. They just didn't know. I had a bishop in my old denomination that once told our church, it was a big church I was in, it was a very solid church I was in, but he once leaned over and he told our church this. Any, I could tell that any preacher was a good preacher, and any preacher worth his salt was good when I came and I sat down and I listened to that preacher and he preached a passage out of the Old Testament. And he knew what he was doing. That was so rare in my old denomination. 
In fact, when I thought about it, I hardly ever heard a preacher outside of the church that I grew up in. Now, I grew up in a really solid church. Truro Episcopal Church was huge, thousands upon thousands. We had 45-minute sermons. Can you imagine that? 45-minute sermons. The services were two hours to two and a half hours. Lots of praise and worship. Long sermons. And it was packed with young people and old people. I never missed church. I went on my own when my parents didn't show up. Never missed. Loved it. Went on Friday nights for another two and a half hour service that was simply praise and worship. So good was the service. They preached on the Old Testament. I learned about it. It was strange to me to hear that. But when I left Truro Church, I hardly ever heard it. But you also hardly ever hear it, and I, this was also strange to me, when I went out among non-denominational churches and other kinds of denominations too. And what I really quickly found out was other denominations began to teach that the Old Testament didn't really matter because when Jesus came, the Old Testament wasn't really that important. We just needed to focus on the New Testament. Now, there are some pastors, a lot of pastors who will preach on it, but the Old Testament kind of gets forgotten. But this is and has not been the teaching of the church for 2,000 years. This is a relatively new teaching. And it was certainly not the view of the disciples. Both the disciples and the early church used the Old Testament extensively. It had value. In fact, it was their Bible. They quoted it. The New Testament hadn't come into fruition yet. Did you know that? You knew that, right? Yeah, yeah. We learned that in seminary. Everything in the Old Testament needs to be reinterpreted in the light of the New Testament. Did you know that? When Jesus comes, that changed everything. But this is what it meant. That things in the Old Testament must be reinterpreted in the light of the New Testament. But not just the New Testament in the light of Jesus. Because the New Testament is all speaking about Jesus. Now there are some things that are done away with in the Old Testament. But they're only done away with because those things in the Old Testament pointed forward to Jesus Christ. And so those things are changed and transformed. And that's why they're done away with. But as we will see this morning, without understanding the Old Testament, we simply can't understand our faith. We cannot fully understand who we are as believers. If you're not reading your Old Testament, you don't know who you are. You don't understand your faith faith. We serve an ancient God. We do. We're part of an ancient lineage of believers. Did you know that? You think you just came to faith recently, but you are part of a lineage of believers that stretches back to the beginning of the earth. A faith that goes back thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. This faith is not owned by you. It doesn't belong to you. You've just inherited it. The promises of salvation started with Adam and Eve. They flowed through Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, the judges. And now at last we've come to one of the single most significant prophecies in all of Scripture. 2 Samuel 7. 
So it begins with our godly king resting after conquering all of his enemies. Now, if you don't know the story of David, we've been going through it. In 1 Samuel, we're just starting it. We haven't gotten to David yet. But David was a man of war. David grew up killing lions and bears. Lions and bears. They were actually in that time. We don't understand now. We don't, we don't think about lions and bears being in Israel. But lions and bears and tigers and all this stuff used to be all over the place. Lions used to be all through the Middle East. We don't think of that now, but the Romans actually wiped them out. All over North Africa, the Romans in the gladiatorial games killed so many animals that they, ex- they made them extinct in all different areas. But they used to be there. And David used to have to kill them because they killed his sheep. So this man, this boy, grew up killing lions and bears and then broke onto the scene after he's anointed king by killing Goliath of Gath, who was a huge man, probably about seven feet, maybe a little taller than that. He was a huge warrior. Everybody was scared of fighting Goliath. David kills him and cuts off his head. Then David fights for Saul, and he'd been a man of war with Saul under King Saul. He led Saul's armies for a while until Saul got jealous and wanted to kill David. David fled from Saul. He had to fight sometimes Saul's armies, but he also fought the Philistines. David's entire life had been war. And then David rises to be a king. But during, remember, we studied that when David became a king, he was fighting a civil war then. And he was fighting a little bit of a civil war. And then the civil war ends. And then David unites that kingdom. And then he fights again because the Philistines are still there and all kinds of other people, Jebusites and those folks. And he fights again and he unites the kingdom. And finally, after fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting, the Lord gives him peace. Can you imagine finally coming to peace? And finally, after this peace, what is David's first thought? This is the thought of a man of God. What does he say? He looks and he says, I'm dwelling in a beautiful house, but the Lord, the Lord is dwelling in a tent. We just last week studied about the ark and what happened. And here he says, the Lord is dwelling in a tent. How is this? This isn't right. I'm not better than God. I want to build him a house. Something better than this. Nathan the prophet says, well, that sounds pretty good. Go build him a tent. It's natural to all of us. We all want to build God better things, don't we? I mean, I was in Europe and I saw all these amazing churches. If you've never been in Europe, I love the history of churches. I love the history of the church. And I went in Austria and I went in Venice and I I visited all these churches. Probably drove my family crazy. I gave them a break and I just went to the churches. Uh, A lot of times my kids didn't even know what I was looking at. They were young. They didn't know that. Uh, My father-in-law, he was not a Christian, so it really kind of drove him nuts. He's very patient with me and I, I, I I was thankful for that, but I gave them a break, and I just went and saw the churches because I knew what I was looking at. I knew the history. I knew what had happened in these places. I, could, I knew everything that was going on. I could sit there, and I knew that in these places, some of these places were 800 A.D., and, and Christians had been in all these amazing things. And some of them, you could, in the early churches, they weren't that gilded. They were just amazing places. to see. Later on, they were gilded with gold and gilded with that and painted with this and painted with that. And we Christians, we like to make things amazing for God. Some of these places were built over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. They're amazing places. And David is looking and he's saying like that. Nathan says, well, that seems pretty good. Now, Nathan is a person that everyone here should know. How many of you have heard of Nathan? Okay, 
Nathan is a, is a person that everybody should know. He is a prophet who walks onto the scene. Now, he's a pretty major prophet. He's not like Isaiah or Ezekiel. He's not quite like Samuel, but he's still a pretty major prophet. And now, Nathan is important because Nathan is the first of a line of exclusive prophets. All of the prophets until Nathan were very different. You see, Samuel was a prophet. Moses was a prophet. Abraham was a prophet. Noah was a prophet. But when Moses was a prophet, he was also the leader of Israel. Moses was a different kind of prophet. Abraham was also the head of his clan. He was a different kind of prophet. So Abraham was kind of like a prophet king. Moses was also kind of like a prophet king. Samuel was also like a judge. He was kind of like a prophet and a king. Even Gideon, not the wisest man, not the best man, but he was a prophet and kind of a king, also a little bit of a crook. But whatever, he was that. But with the rise of the kingship from now on, king will be king and prophet will be prophet. And a king will succeed or fail on how well he listens to the prophets. David will listen to Nathan. Ahab, not so much, right? Other kings, not so much. And the two lines will be different. Now, we do know from Psalms that David, from all the Psalms, that David has prophecies. He's a little bit different. We do know from Proverbs, because... Solomon writes under inspiration in Ecclesiastes that Solomon has prophecies. But others are not. But prophet and king seem to be a little bit separated. And so Nathan then becomes a very important prophet. But we know here that Nathan speaks in error. Look at Samuel 7, 1 through 3. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. All right? That's what it says. But then a little bit further, Nathan kind of comes back and says, um, I made a mistake, and we're about to get a prophecy. And it shows us something. When Nathan says, I made a mistake, and comes back and says, Wait a minute, he has a prophecy from the Lord, that even prophets make mistakes. It sounded good to him at first. I mean, who wouldn't want to build a great house for the Lord? Who wouldn't want to do something like that? But it does show us something. That you can make a mistake doing a good thing or thinking you're doing a good thing by not praying and listening to the Lord. Look, I as a man may think that Susie, this really godly, incredible Christian woman, is the one for me because she's a really godly, incredible Christian woman. And Susie may think she's the one for me because, come on, it's me, right? So she may want to marry me, right? And we may think we're the ones for each other. And if I don't pray, we may go on and get married. But what if? What if I made a mistake? What if instead he has Kulap in Bangkok? who I would meet in the missions field or in my Ph.D. program, who's aligned with me in every single way for the ministry or the path that he has ahead of me. While Susie is for one who's headed to England because both are called to work and ministry in the Anglican church. 
You see, because I didn't pray, I didn't hear that. God has something different for both of us. I need to pray and I need to learn to listen to God because just because two people are good and just because a path may seem good doesn't mean it's God's will. Have you developed your prayer life? Have you learned how to listen to God? This is something that we as Christians need to learn how to do. You need to learn how to distinguish God's will from your own. God works in mysterious ways, which we don't always see. We have the Holy Spirit within us. That's what Romans 8 says. The Holy Spirit leads us and guides us. The God of the universe is within us. And no, when he guides us and leads us, it's not Scripture. It doesn't need to be recorded in Scripture. But there are individual ways and individual decisions in our life in which God leads us. And sometimes he leads us through the church, and sometimes he leads us through illumination or lighting up Scripture. But there are decisions like marriage and like raising our kids and like all kinds of other decisions, which I can't open the Scripture and point to page 5, which says, hey, Mary Kelly. There are things that the Lord has to lead us, and we have to learn and develop those skills on how to distinguish the guiding of the Holy Spirit. And that's why we develop prayer. Why would you ask the Lord if you don't expect answers? If you ask the Lord and pray to the Lord and don't expect answers, you are functionally a deist. Functionally, you're a deist. Now, asking him is exactly what Nathan does, and he gets a surprising answer. No, David, you aren't supposed to build a temple for me. Not at all. But the real shocker comes after that. 2 Samuel 7, 7. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? What's he saying here? Spank, 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 David. Smack. You think you're awesome. You think you're cool. Do I need a house of cedar? I dwell in the heavens. Nice thing. You think I need a little bitty house of wood? Where do you think I live? You think I need a church of gilded gold? I don't. I don't need it. I'm sitting here on the sun, which I made. I don't need your little house of gold. This is something that a lot of churches need to remember. We oftentimes, we do this in the Anglican church. I, I run into so many people. Oh, I really love a lovely service. We need to make this service in Old English because we all know that the Lord speaks in King James English. The Lord only answers if you use thy and thou and thee and dust. And I always ask them, really, how do the Spaniards worship? How do the French worship? How do the Chinese worship? Hmm. St. Paul. Jesus must have been like, I can't understand you. You're speaking Hebrew. We're so arrogant. God says, did I ask for a house? When I want a house, I will tell you I want a house, little king. I made you. I made you. 
And when he wants a house, he will tell them exactly what he wants. Why? Because that house will be a symbol of the heavenly places. And everything in that house is going to point us forward to Jesus. So many people get focused on that house. We need to rebuild this house so that the Lord will come. No, no, that house pointed forward to Jesus, and that house pointed us forward to the heavenlies. And when Jesus came, we no longer need that house. Now the house dwells within us because we are temples of the Holy Spirit. It points us forward to something like everything in the Old Testament. Instead, God says something powerful. He answers David with an amazing prophet prophecy. 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 11, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones on the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Now listen to that prophecy. They'll be disturbed no more. Now that can't be Israel because they're going to be, well, have you read the Bible? How many times are they going to be disturbed in Israel? Not no more. <laughs> no more is not the answer. Because in Israel, they are constantly going to be disturbed. That's what Hebrews tells us. There is a land later on. This is a prophecy of eternity. There is a rest that will come. The prophets are going to point that out. That's what they're pointing out too. Amos tells us that. There's a land later on. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly. Violent men are only going to be gone at the end. From the time that I appointed the judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares that the Lord will make you a house. He says, I will build you up from nothing, David. Isn't this just like the Lord? To build us up from nothing into something. I was nothing. He builds us from nothing into something. Peter, a fisherman. Paul, a murderer. Both start as messes and end up as tremendous men of God. For that matter, pretty much all of the disciples are like that. But then again, so is Jacob, a liar. <laughs> and Joseph, a dreamer and a pretty boy, and a mama's boy, and just an all-around fool. And Moses, a baby in a basket of a slave girl. God doesn't see what we are. He sees what we will be, and thank goodness for that. And here the Lord saw David's heart, and he rewards David with rest. But here's the thing, the prophecy is far deeper than simply just affecting David's life. You see, the Lord will make David a house, but the house with which he speaks isn't really a house of brick and stone and wood. 7, 12 to 16. When your days are fulfilled, you shall lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name. Now Solomon's going to build a house, and people think that's him. But here's the thing, I will establish... The kingdom, uh, his throne, his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. 
with the stripes of the Son of Man, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, from as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you in your house, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Did you catch that? David's house will be established forever. Now, now, in the Old Testament, forever didn't always mean what we mean by forever. Because in the ancient Near East, forever doesn't mean what we always mean by forever. We think forever means forever. So I always eternally get people saying, well, the Bible said forever, and then they broke it, and so that doesn't mean forever, so the Bible's lying. I always get New Testament scholars and Old Testament scholars saying that. But if you read in the ancient Near East, every covenant said forever. This is a covenant forever. This is a covenant forever. This is a covenant forever. And what it usually meant was, this is a covenant forever by the suzerainty or by the king, by the leader, by Pharaoh, by whatever the king was. This is a covenant forever until I tell you it changes because I'm the king. So you little peeps, you little people, this is a covenant as long as I say it is. That's what it meant. So, covenant forever, it's just like when your dad says it, right? You do this as a two-year-old or a five-year-old or a teenager forever. This is my rule till the next year when I change it. When I change it, then it's done, right? So as long as I made this rule, you do it. And then I change it when you're older or when something happens. That's what it means to be a covenant forever. But in this case, he's going to build an eternal kingdom. How do we know this? How do we know this is not forever? Because he establishes a lot of things that are going to change, and they're going to be forever. And where do we find this forever son? Well, it can't be Solomon because he is oh, a white, hot mess. Read about it. Thousands of wives, follows pagan gods, White hot mess. Spends like crazy. How many of you spend like crazy? Anywhere in this church, how many of you spend like crazy? Masks covering up some people giggling. Not going to say anyone in this church. Any, anyone know anyone who spends like crazy? Luke one twenty eight. The angel Gabriel gives us the answer. And he came to Mary and said this. Greetings, O favored one. And we'll end with this. The Lord is with you. And then later in 131. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Jesus is the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. This is a prophecy. This is the first full-throated prophecy in 2 Samuel 7 of Jesus. It's a clear one. It's pointing to who he is. Jesus will reign eternally. It's Jesus who will come from the body of David through his offspring, Mary, and through the adopted line of Joseph. This boy shepherd, this warrior, this king, this adulterer, this failed father will be the one chosen to bring the line that will bring us Jesus. And if he can come through this guy, if he can come through the line of Rahab the prostitute, through Tamar, Man, 
then that gives you hope and me hope, right? God loves sinners. David and Mary aren't God. They're sinners like us. And the prophecy is what's key here. And here is the clearest, most powerful prophecy of the coming salvation of Jesus the Messiah, or the Christ in Greek. It's the same thing. This kingdom is made of people, all who will come unto him. It's built of all who will turn to Jesus and be saved. It's built of all God's angelic beings and heavenly hosts. It's not this hot mess on the globe we see right now. This is all going to pass away one day. But a new heaven and a new earth will appear. And death and crying will be no more. And the prophecy will be complete. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. Amen.